next thing I know, I found myself in charge of a massive development project and the developer ran. It was because he was upside down. He was going to lose money on it. We worked on that for a good year. It drained me financially, took me literally to my knees. As I was on my knees, I spent a lot of time talking with the big guy, figured out like what I should and shouldn't be doing. And we came out of that thankfully alive, but we went through bankruptcy. I started working my butt off through some good connections and some good prayer. We ended up doing zero to a million in a year. Welcome to Personal Finance Cat, where I share my personal take on personal finance. Hi, Nate. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, you have an awesome background. We were just chatting before this. It's really cool. Yeah, Do you come, yeah. come to this area a lot? So, so they built this giant ark. Literally, they recreated Noah's Ark in the middle of Kentucky, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so my wife and I started coming here like four years ago uh -huh. to go see this giant thing. And um, we love the area because we also get a chance to buy multifamily properties here. And so we bought a cabin. So I'm at the cabin right now. Cool. Cool. That's a good segue. looks like you're a real estate investor. And um, you mentioned that you were investing in multifamily properties and you're in Kentucky. Can mm -hmm. you kind of talk about how you get into this industry? How long have you been investing? Yeah. So I, I worked at Target Corporation as an executive, like regular W2 employee. And I wanted to, I realized that I was never going to become the CEO of Target. And so I started looking for more opportunity. And then um, I found real estate, took some courses, jumped in, started doing some deals, started buying. I bought a, a little tiny three bedroom, one bath rental as my first one, and then started getting more. And then I got ambitious and signed for a huge development project. And I don't know if you've ever done one of those things where everyone told you not to, but <laughs> my wife especially was saying, no, 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 we shouldn't do this. And I, I did it anyways. And then um, halfway through the development project, six months in, the developer called and said, we're, we're done. We're jumping ship. I'm like, what? Jumping ship? What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. and next thing I know, I found myself in charge of a massive development project and the developer ran. And um, it was because he was upside down. He was going to lose money on it. Mm. And so we worked on that for a good year. It drained me financially, took, took me literally to my knees. And... Um, as I was on my knees, I spent a lot of time talking with the big guy and um, figured out like what I should and shouldn't be doing. And we came out of that thankfully alive, but we went through bankruptcy. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I started working my butt off and um, through, through some good connections and some good, good prayer, we ended up doing zero to a million in a year. And that was the first time in my life I had ever hit a million dollars. And so... Um, yeah, how do you get into it? I don't recommend you jump into a monster development project. If you if you stick with like simple, basic, boring properties, the business is great. Like my, my wife and I, thank God, we've been able to rebuild and we're twice as strong as we used to be, but we had to go through a little bit of pain in the middle to, to learn what humility really is. All right, so that's a lot to unpack. Um, and I resonated so much when you told that story because we had a similar experience when we bought our first large multifamily, like a commercial level. Because um, I think prior to that point, our largest was like a four unit, which is still considered residential, right? But once you go above that, it's uh, commercial. And that also took a year that completely drained us. And that's kind of a reason why we're taking a pause right now. 
we didn't have as bad an experience as you did. It's still very similar and it's really um, difficult. And, you know, we were also both W2 professionals and have full-time jobs to attend to. So my next question to you is, were you still working at Target at that time? And how did you, how did you manage to do this and then your W2 job? Yes. So I, um, I started doing both at the same time. I was basically doing real estate on the weekends and then my day job. And then um, I worked at Target. Target had this management opportunity open up where you could actually work four days per week, but one of the days had to be a weekend. And I, I'm like, I'll take it. I'm in. And then it opened up some business hours during the week. So I, I really used those hours to meet with like contractors and whatever else I had to do. Um, when I had the development project flop on me a, a year and a half, two years later, I wasn't at Target anymore. I had resigned. But I remember my former boss, Jeff Stokes from Target, he called me because he heard about what happened and he invited me to come back. He's like, hey, you should come back. I can get you back in. And I remember having some serious reflection at that moment. It's like, I could just go back, but I can't. I can't. I've already learned so much. I'm already down this path. Like it's painful right now, but I can't. And um, we ended up having having faith over fear and we just kept pushing forward and Thankfully, within a year, we really had a breakthrough. Um, but yeah, I wasn't at Target anymore, though. Okay, okay. That makes sense. My next question is, when you had that much stress under you, and you mentioned even the bankruptcy, how did you kind of navigate through it? I think you said prayer, which I know is definitely necessary during that kind of moments in your life. But what other strategies you use to cope with, um, with that kind of stress? Yeah. Uh, great question. So I, at first I didn't cope with it very well. If mm. I can just speak, speak candidly, uh, I felt like a failure. I, I, I was supposed to be like the breadwinner in the family. My, my wife had this dream and this vision of being able to raise our kids at home. And here I am. I, I had to turn to my wife, Jennifer, at one point, and I had to ask her to go and clean houses. And, um, Thank, thank God she was a trooper. She started a little little business called Bianco Healthy Homes, the name of our newborn son, Bianco. Mm -hmm. And she started cleaning houses. And I'll never forget that. Um, so I didn't handle it very well in the beginning, but 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 I, I knew that I couldn't just sit still. I knew that if I just curled up on the ball and hid, then it would get worse. So I just start getting up every single day and I started pushing and pushing. And then I feel like once I did that, then doors started opening this this guy was doing something interesting on was on social media with real estate. And I'm like, really, how are they doing that? Using social media to get real estate deals. Mm -hmm. And so I, I gravitated towards that and then I started modeling that. And then that, that led to a, a 40,000 payday. And then we stepped, kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And that's once we got momentum with it, that's when things just took off for us. Yeah, that's awesome. And then I think you mentioned at some point that, you also were able to build it from a zero to a million after that first development project. When you say a million, is that the sale of the project that you built? Uh, not, not like the purchase price of the building, but um, mm -hmm. several buildings it took to hit that. We had a million bucks go through our bank account. So like actual cash proceeds that came through. Oh, wow. um, so se several transactions to make that happen. Okay. So are you more like a developer now or a rental property owner? Um, today, my my strong suit is really buying um, multifamily properties mm -hmm. and doing small partnerships. So okay. 
two, three, four people come together, put cash into a deal. I go find the deal, um, uh, manage contractors, manage property management, et cetera, to make a cash flow. And then I share the profits from that deal. Okay, got it. And then your areas are like the South or what, what areas do you cover? Yeah, today we're primarily buying in the state of Kentucky, which okay. is why I got the cabin here in Kentucky. And then we still buy in Wisconsin only because I've been operating in Wisconsin for a decade plus. And we've done a thousand, thousand plus units oh, out of Wisconsin. So, but from a cash flow perspective, Kentucky is the best in the country. I, I've looked at a lot of deals. We have a lot of consulting clients that we consult for over 200 across the country. So I look at all of their deals all the time. And um, Kentucky is just, it's a very, very strong cash flow market with good, good underlying fundamentals. Yeah. Yeah. You don't do syndication. The partnerships are not syndication per se, are they? Yeah. Gr great question. I'm glad you make the distinction. Um, mm -hmm. I can tell you're savvy. You, you know, this business. <laughs> so when we have a lot of investors, like as an example, we're, we're buying a $12 million property right now. Mm -hmm. That's going to take more than one or two partners to do it. And so we'll probably have like five, maybe 10 partners. And when you bring in that many people, then we have to syndicate mm -hmm. where, where we try to keep it small and simple is like, if it's like a $3 million property, there are a lot of people out there that, that would happily place a million dollars cash into that deal where you could just form a partnership with them. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the bank for the other $2 million and it's an easy deal to get done with just super simple two people. But, but we do syndicate the bigger stuff. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So I, I have done a syndication deal as a limited partner. So I invested some retirement money in the syndication deal from someone that I met at the meetup locally. I'm pretty sure he covers the South mainly too. And that deal in particular is in Memphis, but I know okay. that Kentucky, um, the Carolinas, Florida, Georgia, I think maybe those two have gotten too competitive. But, you know, these are generally pretty good markets to find cash flowing multifamily properties. But one thing I did notice is that it's getting really competitive. Are you still able to find deals? And if so, what are your strategies to find the good deals that still make sense? Yeah, gr great question. So we go 100% off market. We don't touch anything that's on the market. And mm -hmm. there, there's a unique opportunity right now with, it's kind of like, um, did you ever see that movie Back to the Future? Yeah, like Martin yeah. Fly. So uh -huh. like you know, they get in this old DeLorean car and they go back in time. Mm -hmm. Well, if we could go back in time to when mortgage rates were 3%, I think all of us would say we'd take out as many as we possibly could because we didn't know that rates would be 8% in mm -hmm. the near future. Well, there is a way to go back in time. And the way is, is that you find the sellers that have mortgage rates that are in the threes and in the fours and you offer to buy their property directly from them and say, hey, can I take over your existing bank loan? And so that's that's really what, what we got good at. We just know how to find them. We know how to look up tax records and see who took out those mortgages then. And then we know we know what to say to them and what to present them with. And that's how we're getting our deals right now. Cool. And then are you just doing direct mail, cold calling? Social media. It's really? like, I, I've done the whole direct mail game and um, we, I, I ran TV ads a decade ago and there's nothing like social media. I mean, even how in a roundabout way, how you and I got connected and how your platform extends through all the social channels mm -hmm. nowadays, like even the owners of a $12 billion apartment building, they're on social media. Mm -hmm. And if you put the right message in front of them, they'll respond to it. 
So are you running, let's say Facebook ads or something like that? Or how do you identify the people to target that are? Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's two sides. There's one side that's the investor and there's one side that's the seller. So I'll talk about both of them a little bit separately because they're different attraction models. On the seller side, we set up a Facebook group in each city that we're buying in. And we usually, like as an example, we have one called Milwaukee Off-Market Deals in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's mm -hmm. probably got 4,000 people in it now. And in there, we just do a value add every single week, something kind of like a podcast. Maybe we do an interview like this. Mm -hmm. It just in front of our community members. And we're always saying, hey, if you're a landlord out there and you're thinking about selling and you don't want to get nailed with capital gains tax, we might be a good team that could help you. We've got a creative structures and how we can help you sell. And so we get like off market organic tra traffic from doing that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now over on the investor side, that's a little bit different, similar strategy, but the attraction's different. So we form a Facebook group for passive investors. And then to attract them to come there, we usually give them some kind of lead magnet. That's mm -hmm. a, I know that you know what it is, but for anyone that doesn't follow, like it's basically like, give something away for free that they would find valuable. Mm -hmm. So one of our really popular ones right now is why the rich don't have to pay taxes, the definitive guide to eliminating your personal income tax. Mm -hmm. And in that guide, we model out what it means to invest in a piece of real estate and get the tax benefits from it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. And that's also done through some kind of podcasts or courses or something that is the, the free thing that you give away? That That's a Facebook ad that says, hey, if you want this thing, it's right inside my Facebook group. Join this group, get the thing, and um, you'll have it. To, to get the thing, um, they join the Facebook group, they get the, the free lead magnet, and then now they're in the group. And then guess who shows up every week? <laughs> I, I come in, I say hello, I try to add value. I, I don't come in like sell stuff every week. What I do is I just get in and say, hey, Here's where interest rates are at right now. Here's how to find the best deals. Here's what worked last week to get a deal. So I just try to share what we're doing on our journey. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of it, I say, hey, if you're thinking about doing this stuff, but you don't want to do the heavy lifting yourself, if you'd rather be a passive investor, my team has been helping people for the last decade. We're happy to help you too. Here's how you can connect with us. Cool. So maybe some more follow-up questions on what you just said. So you're able to get the investors, you're able to get the deals, and then you put them together. I'm assuming you have probably a very good team now to take care of what happens after that, right? So can you talk about that, like what people are on your team and how they're organized to sort of help run this business? Yeah, great, great question. So um, on the date leading up to closing, a lot of people forget this stuff. It's not just after closing. I know you know, but for anyone that doesn't, in a multifamily purchase, like you got to examine leases, you got to examine the applications of each of the tenants to make sure that the previous seller wasn't pumping bad tenants in and then they're just going to dump them to you. So you're looking at all of this stuff during due diligence. It's not just a physical inspection of the property. It's, it's a financial inspection. We then we audit the leases, we look at the applications, and then we look at the rent roll to make sure that they're corresponding with what tenants are supposed to be paying. If we see any abnormalities or if we're like hey this doesn't look right then we're going to red flag it we're going to bring it back to the seller and and talk it out out loud so that's all happening prior to closing um day before closing you need to do another occupancy check 
I can't tell you how many times I've seen it. I've, it's happened to me before where you, you, you're buying a property at 95% occupancy, but then all of a sudden on the day of closing, it's like 85%. It's like, well, what happened? Where, where, and, and so you got to pump the brakes and say, hey, you guys got to fix this or you got to provide some kind of monetary reimbursement because our agreement was 95%. Mm-hmm. And um, the other big one is that whoever is doing property management for you needs to send um, really good notification to the tenants that there's a change in ownership or a change in management. And a lot of people botch that one. They they kind of do it like last second and they don't give tenants enough time to like adjust and make phone calls to verify. Cause it's kind of scary for a tenant. It's like, you know, they've been working with the same owner for years and now all of a sudden there's this letter that says they're supposed to send their rent to a different address. Mm-hmm. So we, we do the old fashioned door knock. We do a mailer. Uh, we'll call everybody. We are going to talk with every single person, not just send a letter prior to us taking over. So then when it comes to takeover day, like we just took over a 49 unit building a couple weeks ago, it was right at the end of the month. And so most people, like when it comes to rent collections right after a takeover, it's messy the first month because tenants are still sending checks to the previous owner. With us, we collected 90% of the tenants rents the very first week that we had the building. And um, that's really good. So we had 10% probably missent the check still, but it's much better than what most people do. So that's all leading up to closing. Mm-hmm. Should I still keep going for post-closing? Yes. Yeah. I don't know like how large your buildings are, but um, you know, there's like debate about, are you inspecting every unit in the property? One more item. One of my biggest challenges with real estate is the CapEx. A lot of times, the reason why the previous owner wants to get rid of the property is because maybe the roof is coming to the life expectancy. You might be basically dealing with a lot of huge CapEx items right after acquisition. So how do you kind of uh, factor that into your um, calculation? How do you prepare for that? Yeah, those are, I guess, the questions leading up to closing. Yeah. So, so we do have an inspector go, um, even though like I feel qualified, like I could assess a property, I still don't trust myself. Um, simply because I'd rather have a third party that that's their sole job. They do it every day for a living and they have E and O insurance. So if they make a mistake, like they've got an insurance that backs them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we do, we do have them go through on smaller buildings. They go through every single unit on really big buildings. They'll usually go through about 10%. But then what you have to do is write a clause in the contract with the seller that the units that they show, they actually let us go through every unit thereafter will be in better shape than these. So please show us the worst 10%. Okay. And that way there if contractually, if, if you pop into one, that's a, a nasty one after closing, you can say, Hey, you signed an agreement that you showed us the 10 worst this, you got to reconcile for this. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you deal with the capex is the real question. So, when the inspector comes back and says, Hey, I was up on the roof and I noticed that the roof was bad. Then we're going to budget for that at takeover. Mm-hmm. We typically budget, um, whatever our inspector says, plus whatever we see on our walkthrough ourselves as we're kind of walking around. And then we also budget a slush fund beyond that. Mm-hmm. When we buy a property, I love to have, uh, on like a $3 million property. I like to have at least a hundred thousand dollars slush fund for those. What ifs. On a twelve million dollar property, I like to have three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars for what ifs as well. Mm-hmm. And then the slush funds and you know the reserves, they are part of the funds that you raise from your investors. Exactly. Yes. Okay. 
after closing, what else do you typically do? Is it taking care of the items that you notice during the inspection? I think you already mentioned that you would notify the tenants about the new ownership, letting them know that the rents should be sent to X and Y. But do you also revamp? Because a lot of the properties, I think, especially the mom and pop type, they do a lot of things very manually, right? Do you also try to automate a lot of the things after you acquire the property? Yeah. So, so yes. Um, first thing right when we take over is um, making sure that rent collections are established, maintenance uh, pipeline is in order. Uh, tenants usually have pent up maintenance things on a takeover, like previous seller was trying to defer them. And now you got a bucket list of stuff to get done. And then the other big one that we try to hit is the common areas. So like little things like your hallways, your doors, maybe if there's a common community room, those things um, to the to the tenants are a really big deal. And if we have new prospective tenants coming in, we want those to present really, really well. It's like mm-hmm. if we go stay at a hotel, the, all the money in hotels, they put into the lobby area to make it beautiful. Mm-hmm. The rooms might be dated, but the, the lobby is going to look. We have to do the same thing for, for our tenants that are coming in. So that's the first thing we do right after takeover. Mm-hmm. The next thing we do is we evaluate when leases expire. So... We build a Gantt chart, which is just a giant spreadsheet of all the lease expirations for the next year. And then 60 days before expiration, our team is reaching out to that tenant to say, hey, remember, we're the new owners. We're going to come in and we're going to do some improvements to the property. We're going to make this a a better community for the long term. Did you plan on staying or were you planning on relocating? Let's start to have that conversation. We usually then talk about what the rent rate will be for the future. And then if we can secure that tenant to stay longer, that's the goal, number one. But if they're like, well, I can't pay more rent, then we say, hey, if you look around at market pricing, like this is where market is and we describe where market is. But if you stay, we could probably get you a new uh, new blinds or maybe it's new carpet. Usually there's something that the tenant really wants that they wish they have that they would rather stay in that unit than have to relocate. And so we try to find that to retain them. And then at the end of the day, if they just can't swing the new rent rate, then we just say, okay, we understand. We'll, we'll plan for you to move out in 60 days. Okay. Makes sense. Do you personally still do a lot of these things or are you just delegating them to the team now? Yeah. And, and, you, and I didn't fully answer your question earlier. I apologize. So we have a CFO who looks mm-hmm. at all the numbers, all the financials, all that kind of stuff. And then we mm-hmm. have a COO. Rodney is his name. Rodney is the guy that's in charge of taking a property from the closing table. So as soon as we close on it to at least 90% occupancy and stabilized. And so um, that's his full focus. He's usually coordinating with contractors and the leasing agent until we hit that 90% occupancy. And then once we hit there, he hands it over to our CFO who just works with the, the onsite property manager. Got it. And your properties are scattered around different states, right? Like Wisconsin, Kentucky. Do those people work in both locations? Great question. So um, uh, uh, Kate, she is based out of Illinois. She's 100% remote. So she's doing bookkeeping and whatnot, and she doesn't have to be on site. Um, Rodney travels. He splits his time between the two two markets. So it's just Wisconsin and Kentucky for us. Okay. Um, and then we have an on-site property manager at every property. Okay. So that that's the key. So Rodney has daily communication and contact with with our on-site property managers. Gotcha. 
Can you maybe just tell us how many units are usually in these properties or do they vary? If it's a smaller property, I don't know if it makes sense to have like a property manager dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have some like location concentration. That's why you were able to do that with each property. Yeah. So the smallest one we bought in the last year is a 22 unit building. Okay. And it happens to be right next door to a property we bought three or four months before it. That's 78 mm-hmm. units. Okay. And once you cross like the 100 unit mark, you, you can usually afford to have an on-site property manager. Okay. If you're, if you're sub 100, it's way better to get a third party property manager just from a cost perspective. Right. And then the large property we've gotten last year is this um, $12 million deal. It's 161 units. Oh, wow. Can we talk about structuring that $12 million deal? So I think you mentioned it's a syndication. Was that your first syndication that you did? No, no, we've, we've done quite a few of them. Okay. For that one, did the investors all come from like the social media source that you mentioned? Or how did you get all these investors to sign up for that deal? Yeah, most are from social media. So there's a few platforms. So we talked about Facebook groups as being Mm -hmm. kind of one of the most scalable, easy ones. Mm -hmm. But there's other platforms that are really on the rise. Um, LinkedIn, it's been around forever, but a lot of people don't know how to use it. Mm -hmm. And if you use it right, if you're making content posts and whatnot, there's a lot of investors on LinkedIn. Mm, And then kind of the newer kid on the block is Alignable. Mm. Alignable, I had never even heard of it until maybe eight months ago. And we we paid their, I think it's like 40 bucks a month, maybe 50 bucks a month for their premium account. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're getting a lot of investor traffic from Alignable right now. Interesting. Can you only accept accredited investors? Because it seems like it's marketing to the mass, right? When, when we're doing a syndication, yeah, we're, we only mm-hmm. accredited investors okay. simply simply because of the some of the, the laws that the Securities and Exchange Commission have. It's not, um, we wouldn't be able to do mass marketing, like you said, unless mm-hmm. we were accepting accredited investors. Right. Where right. we do it. For those of uh, the audience that don't know what an accredited investor is, can you explain that? Yeah. So if as an individual, if you make $200,000 or more per year, then the SEC would say, hey, you, you probably fall in the accredited bucket. There's no like special test or certification or anything like that. It's just a, a checkmark box you put on a form that says, yeah, I fall into this bucket. Mm-hmm. As a married household, it's $300,000 or more per year. Mm-hmm. Or there's a third way, which is net worth. If your net worth is a million dollars or more per year, not including your personal house, then they would call you an accredited investor. Yeah. Lately, I've heard that some people are saying that it's not easy to get the accredited investor, the accreditation. From your investors, do you know, are the majority of them kind of meeting the net worth test or the income test? That's a good question. I am I have not gone back and looked at all of the forms to mm-hmm. be able to tell you. If I had to just take gut feel, I would probably say it's from an income standpoint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It could could very well be net worth, could be both. Okay. Um, the, the big change that happened in the last year is that now that you have to have a third party sign that letter, the letter that you just said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Letter is just a one pager and it says that you're either a certified accountant for the individual, you're a financial planner, or you're an attorney for the individual. Any of the three can sign off saying, yep, I know that my client is accredited. They meet these mm-hmm. income criteria. Yep. And so we, we haven't had any problem getting that, but I know some people, they're kind of 
you know, grumbling about it because they're like, oh, that's one more step. A year ago, you didn't ever had to do that. You mm -hmm. it's optional, but it wasn't a requirement. Now it's a requirement. Yeah. Maybe just to add a little bit of clarification, it has to be at least two years, the income. It's not just right away when you hit that income, you can get that accreditation. Can you talk about what are some of the competitive advantages that you have to you know, winning the market? Because I've seen so many people doing a similar business now, and I just feel like the market is so saturated and competitive. It is. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. There's like <laughs> everyone knows that during a recession, multifamily is like it's historically been a safe haven. And it makes sense. Like during the last big crash, 2008 through 2012, people were losing their single family houses and they were piling into apartment buildings. Rents were going mm -hmm. up on apartment buildings. Right. And so smart money right now is parking money into multifamily real estate. So it's gotten really, really competitive. The, the advantage that we have, um, I think, is because we own a company called Social Media Blueprint and we really figured out how to get directly to sellers. We're not messing around with brokerages. We're not getting into highest and best. We're literally working in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the seller. And the advantage that, that we put on the table for them is that we can say, hey, um, we've, we own a lot of multifamily properties and we know how we can help you mitigate tax problems. You could sell this right now, certainly with a broker and pay them four to 6% fees plus get nailed with taxes. Or you can work with us, let us take over your existing mortgage and we'll pay you an installment payments the next five years to help mitigate some of your tax liability. Mm -hmm. And that message really resonates with some of these sellers. Yeah. That's a very good message. I want to kind of drill in a little bit more. Can you explain to the listeners who don't know about this necessarily, what is the tax burden that you're referring to and why that might be a problem for the seller and how you're solving that for them? Yeah. So, so my wife introduced me to this one seller. His name's Gabriel. He's had this property handed from his mom down to him and Gabriel and I were talking about me buying it. And, um, uh, at one point I asked him, I said, Hey, Gabriel, he said he wanted cash. Didn't want to mess around with anything else but cash. I said, Gabriel, Hey, I'm just curious. What would you do with the cash if you had it? And he said, well, I'd put it in the stock market. And I said, you, you'd risk it in the stock market right now. He's like, well, no, no, I, I'd have to find a really good place for it. And I'm like, got it, got it. I'm like, and do you know how, how you'd be taxed if you got all the money at once? And he said, Oh, I'm going to have to pay tax on it. Cause the, the, the basis that I got it at was, was nothing. And, and I'm like, Hmm, I'm like Gabriel, do you believe in this asset? Do you think it's a good, good property? And he said, yeah, it's great. It's been in the family forever. At least like, I just don't want to have to deal with any, any of the moving parts, tenants and toilets. And, and I'm like, okay, well, if you believe in this, then how about we structure this instead of you, you know, just, you know, liquidating and then getting taxed on the liquidation. Cause when you get taxed, when you make a gain, the IRS loves to take capital gains tax. That's just part of the equation. I said, instead of that happening to you all at once right now, what we could do is I'll just make monthly payments to you for the property. I'll give you a bit of it down now. I'll give you 10% right now. So you know that I'm real, but then I'll make monthly payments to you for the next 10 years. And, and your profit's not going to come for a delayed period of time. That way there, you won't get nailed with capital gains tax right now. Would you be open to something like that? And then he asked me a couple questions. He's like, Hey, can my, my attorney review this? And we went back and forth on our conversation. I said, yeah, of course you can review anything that you want. And then the next thing I know about a week later, his attorney sent me over the contract outlining exactly what we talked about. And so, um, what are the things that they can mitigate? Number one, not having to pay a big capital gains tax lump sum all up front. 
what else can they mitigate? Um, uh, by doing installment payments for some sellers, it's actually a breath of fresh air. Um, I'm dealing with another one. This, this guy inherited a trust from his mom. Uh, in the trust, it specifically says that he's supposed to get staggered payments every quarter for the rest of his life. Well, uh, he fired the trustee and got a new trustee to change part of the, the words in the trust. Anyways, he blew all of mom's money. Gone. The only thing they have left is this piece of real estate. And so in my conversation with him, and this is like a 65 year old man, like he mm -hmm. spent mom's money over the last 40 years. And so in my conversation with him, I said, Hey, I can help you with this property. No problem. Um, but if you got one lump sum, do you think that's, that's the way that your mom would have wanted it? Mm -hmm. He said, no, no. She wanted me to get monthly payments. She wanted quarterly or monthly payments. And I said, well, how about this? How about we structure it so I make those payments to you and that way there you can stretch this thing out for the next 20 years and you got payments coming in for forever. Mm -hmm. said, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So I, some people, it's it's an advantage, like mm -hmm. getting all the cash at once. If, if I'm sure everybody can remember and think about the last time you got a lump sum of money, it was probably spent within a month. Whereas when you can get residual income for the next 20 years, that's got a nice, nice draw to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when people are already in their retirement. If you think about the typical story of someone who has owned the property for 30 years or more, like you said, they probably got it for nothing. So the capital gain is huge and they have to pay, I don't know what, 10% of that. It's a lot of money. If you sell it for a million dollars, it's a hundred thousand that you have to pay to the government. And that's like shaped right away. Whereas if you get like annuity, that you get paid a certain amount of cash flow every month, that's your retirement income. I think it makes a lot of sense. I just don't know if enough people understand that. They just prefer cash. Like you said, sometimes they just don't want the trouble of dealing with all the paperwork, but it can be done and it's done a lot. So maybe I wanna switch gears a little bit because I think I found on your website or maybe from your email that you have this nonprofit called Home Invest Kids. Can you talk about that? What is the inspiration to set up that company and what do you do with that company? Yeah. So my wife came to me when our, our we've got a nine-year-old boy now, but a handful of years ago, he was entering kindergarten and my wife said, Hey, um, they're going to be teaching some pretty radical stuff at school. Like you might want to look at this and, and what, the, what it was is they were going to teach, um, um, anal sex to kids. And I'm like, that can't be right. No. Uh, and, and I'm like, wow, this is not good. And so it just, it's just started making me ask a lot of questions like why, what is going on? What are we teaching kids these days? And, and nowadays, if you fast forward to today, like we all know that it's gotten even a little bit crazier. They're doing, um, there, a lot of kids have very strong confusion things going on right now. And so it made me ask questions then. And what I, what I stumbled upon is that, um, a lot of the kids today, that end up incarcerated in jail. They end up on drugs. They end up doing committing teen suicide. There's usually a, a common fundamental missing factor, and it's that one or more of the parents are gone, and they just kind of get put into the system. They either get sent to school or sent to foster care or whatever. And um, and and I I came from a, a family where I had mom and dad. I feel very very blessed, but I know that not every family is able to. And so we started this program called Fishers of Men. We take kids fishing. It's usually uh, either a child that doesn't have two parents or at least one parent. We take them fishing and we just let them come on the ocean with us and experience what it's like to be out there free and 
And then we insert some personal finance missions into the conversation. So they have a blast during that fishing trip because it's something that they've most of them have never done before. They've never gone like deep sea fishing on the ocean. And so after that, then my wife takes over and she runs a homeschool resource center. And so whichever parent they do have or guardian they do have, they can then bring them back to the homeschool resource center. And then my wife just, she pours into them with everything she's got. We homeschool our kids. And that started back when, you know, the craziness was happening in kindergarten for my son. And so now she's just sharing how she raises our kids. She shares with other, other guardians of children. So that's, that's the nonprofit. Uh-huh. And that's, the that's real, wonderful. Yeah. The real estate business is what affords me the privilege to go and do that. That's great. Yeah, I think that's certainly a huge problem. Unfortunately, I think these things are all like political now. So it's hard to deal with that. I'm glad that you and your wife are doing this. I think it's really good work. That's going to help people. What do you envision your future to be? You're running this real estate company that's pretty successful and you're running this nonprofit. Are there any other goals in your life you want to achieve in the future? Yeah. So a couple of things. This is like five-year plan that either my COO or CFO um, retires me. And then I'll, I'll spend some more time in the nonprofit, number one. But then number two, I've got a, a vision where people can uh, invest, literally click of the mouse, easy passive investments and safe investments using blockchain technology. Oh. And so I, I partnered with a company that's already doing it in Europe. And um, I'm just kind of in a trial phase right now. But I, I really think I think more and more people are going to move towards digital currency. That's another political thing. I don't know if I should go down that rabbit hole or not, but I think eventually we're going to be at a stage where like, they're going to say, Hey, there's no more cash. It's digital. And so I want to be in a position for that. And I want to be in a position where people can still park some of their assets into real estate with the click of a mouse. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit? Blockchain, real estate, how are they connected? Yeah. So I'm going to go 10,000 foot view first. So blockchain for anyone that if you're like my dad, who my dad doesn't want to even talk about blockchain. um, But basically, it's this this place where you can store records of information really, really fast on multiple servers instead of just one. So you can't like commit fraud. It's very, very transparent. And it's recorded by multiple different people, multiple locations. And so uh, Bitcoin was the first big thing to use the blockchain technology. Bitcoin, we've all seen what's happened to values. It's had its ups and downs, but it's up tremendously since the day that it launched. Now, several other cryptocurrencies have done the same thing. Well, that technology that they're all using, that blockchain, this record storing information, it it can be used in a lot of different services. Like right now in real estate, we're still using this super old fashioned process called a title company. uh, uh, It's not a title company that's like super old fashioned, but What they have to do, the title company, what they're really doing is they're preparing paperwork to go record at the government's county recorder's office. And everything inside the government's recorder's office is like, I don't want to say it's 1950s because it's obviously more modern than that, but it's as slow as it was back in 1950. There is someone still hand filing, hand stamping, all that kind of stuff. If you've ever purchased a piece of real estate, I would challenge you to think how long did it take you to get the actual deed or copies of the paperwork from the county after you closed? I bet it was three months, if not more. Mm-hmm. And so if we put all this stuff on blockchain, it would be instantaneous. It would be impenetrable. You couldn't commit fraud. You couldn't fake it. Like it would all be done with the click of a mouse. And so I, I want to help push that 
in some way, shape or form. And the way that I know how to do it is um, I'm, I'm not going to be the guy that goes in and reinvents the government system. But what I can do is I can help investors quickly and safely click to get into a deal. So that's the, the bite of the apple that I'm trying to, to do. Okay. Yeah, I've certainly been very interested in blockchain and cryptocurrency for a while. I just feel like I don't fully understand it. The part I understand it's recording a certain transaction on multiple ledgers on different people's computers. So it's hard to, to change it. I think they call it immutable. But then I've been hearing that if there's a supercomputer one day, maybe that would change. I don't feel like I know enough about the technology, but I, I do agree it's promising. I think it can solve a lot of problems until hackers or whoever figured out a way to combat that. But to your point, right, right now I'm buying my own primary residence, which hopefully will be our dream house and forever house. I learned a little bit about doing title research. Basically what that is, is you have to make sure the seller who is selling you this property is actually the seller. So you have to kind of trace the transactions throughout the history of this property, who passed the title to who, is there like a breakage in the link? Because the idea is that if somebody else has a lien on this thing, then this property might not be owned by the seller you think is the owner. But if all those things are recorded on the blockchain, it's a lot easier to verify, right? Because now it's very manual. You have to literally find the papers that documented each change of ownership. So I can definitely see a very useful use case. And there are a lot of other applications as far as understand logistics and such. I do think there's some potential, but that is another completely different story for another day. Kudos to you for trying to do that. I think it's definitely a breakthrough technology that's nothing like what we had before. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of something you said. So like you, you unpacked a lot there, but one mm -hmm. thing I think that everyone should, should take note on is that um, you guys invested into multifamily before buying your forever home. Mm-hmm. And I think most people, especially Americans, like it's the opposite. It's like you go and spend whatever you can to get the nicest house you can, nicest cars, mm -hmm. and you, you worry about investments later, but that's the total opposite of what we should be doing. So mm -hmm. thank you for, for being a steward. Thank you for <laughs> example. Oh, thank you. Do you have any other sort of insight to share with people in terms of managing their finances and think about investing? I can, I can. And um, so I follow um, Matthew 25. It's in the Bible and I won't go all biblical on everybody, but there's a parable to take away that I think we can all take for our lives. What it says is that um, there's basically this guy, a very wealthy person that's going to go on away on a long journey and he puts his money in charge. He puts, he leaves three people in charge of his money. He gives the first one um, five coins. They call it talents, but it's coins. He gives the second one two and he gives the third one one. And he says, okay, go out there, be fruitful, like multiply, multiply this for me. He leaves, he comes back sometime later. And he says, okay, guys, what'd you do with the money? The first one steps up and says, hey, master, I, I took the five and turned it into 10. I doubled it. And then he says to them, he says, you are a good and faithful servant. I'm going to put you in charge of much more. The second one steps forward and says, master, I doubled it as well. I turned two into four. And then he says, you are a good and faithful servant. I'm going to put you in charge of much more. And the third one steps up and says, Master, I knew you were a tough man and I didn't want to lose it. And so I buried it under a rock, but I just went and dug it up and here's your coin back. And then the master turns to him and says, you lazy piece of poo. You, you, you shouldn't have been doing that. If you were going to do that, you should have at least put it in the bank and made interest off of it. Like you're out, you are cast out forever. And so um, that's the story. And it's interesting how and when it's told in the, in the Bible, it's Jesus telling it to a tax collector 
in front of a group of people. He's telling the story. And so that's a story that that I really try to, to live by. Like we are supposed to go out there and double our money in some reasonable amount of time. If it's not money, then it's at least our time, our talents, our treasures, whatever it is. If we're just going to bury it under a rock, we're, we're going to be cast out. If you look at the people that have the most in this world, it's because they were responsible when they had little. And then they proved that they could handle more. And then that, that's a lot of the reason why, like, if you're ever going to do a syndication deal or have other investors come to you, they want to know that you can do good with a little before you get a lot. And so we just have to, to live by that. So that's my my personal finance tip. Look up Matthew 25, follow that to a T. Wow, that's really helpful. I know that there are a lot of money lessons in the Gospels, in the Bible in general, but it's always refreshing to hear about it again in a different context. All right, Grace. So two more questions for you. Do you have a book recommendation for people, either investing or life in general? Yeah, Daniel Coyle, The Talent Code. Uh, it's a must read for everybody. So the, the premise of the book, um, Daniel Coyle travels the world and he tries to figure out why success stories happen in certain places. And so he goes to Brazil to look at soccer players. Why do they produce the best soccer players year after year worldwide? And he figures out that it's a bunch of kids playing in like literally streets in the ghetto and they play in these little tiny confined areas. And, and they play with a, a ball that's not a real soccer ball. It's like a heavy homemade, homemade thing with duct tape on it. And so that kid practices so much by the, by the time that they actually hit a real field with so much more space with a lighter ball, they're better than anybody else. They can spin circles on them. And then he goes to Russia and he looks at the best tennis players in the world. Anyways, what he concludes is that when we practice something obsessively more than 10,000 hours, we develop something in our brain that connects the neurons called myelon, M-A-I-M-I-L-A-N. And the thicker that myelon cord is, the faster we can make those connections. That's why like the soccer players that are the best in the world, they've practiced it more than 10,000 hours. So he concludes that it's not like we're born with this, it's that we create this. We practice until we get that good. Daniel Coyle, The Talent Code, really good book. Yeah, yeah, I'll check it out. I haven't read the book, but I sort of heard something along the lines of you really just need to put in the time to work on something and you can become an expert in almost any field you pick. Very good. And then last question is, where can people find more about you? Yeah, um, I'd love if, 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 if you want to know more and see what we're doing, we I actually have a training. It's 45 minutes that we put together on all this stuff, how to find these properties how to find investors for them, how to make it all happen. It's at natepodcast.com, natepodcast.com. Cool. And what about like social media? Are you on social media as well? Yeah. Yep. On Facebook, it's just Nate Armstrong. And then mm -hmm. um, on Instagram, it's real Nate Armstrong. And those are the two that I'm on the most. Okay, great. All right. Thank you so much, Nate, for coming on the show. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care.